Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 33 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled Triumph of Grace in a Philippian Jail, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 16, verse 16 through 40. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, I can't wait to walk through this chapter. I, I, I think it'd be an exaggeration to say every day, but multiple times a week, I think about Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. I look on them as the ultimate exemplars, displays of Christian contentment that Paul writes about in his epistle to the Philippians. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who strengthens me. Paul and Silas singing in the Philippian jail at midnight with backs bleeding, having had nothing to eat, with their feet fastened in the stocks. Every sense, every one of the five senses protesting with misery, the stench, the pain, uh, the darkness, uh, the, the groaning and the cursing of other prisoners. And there they are singing and praising God. I just want to be like that, Wes. I want mm. to live my life like that. I want to think at every moment, is what you're going through right now even comparable to Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail? No. Well, then cheer <laughs> up, you know? So just as a picture of, of supernatural Christian contentment, it's there. And then the conversion of the Philippian jailer and his family and the simple statement, which is very important, what must I do to be saved? The central question of humanity. And the answer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. We have a lot to talk about today. <laughs> it's a rich passage indeed. Let me go ahead and read Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 40. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. When they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, "'Do not harm yourself, for we are all here!' And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Who did Paul and his companions meet as they were going to the place of prayer, and what does Luke tell us about this person in verse 16? All right, so they meet a slave girl. Um, and this slave girl was possessed by a demon. Um, and this demon uh, gave her a supernatural demeanor and aura and uh, also a certain ability, it says, to predict the future. Now, I have to kind of check this by my just general theology of anything related to predicting of the future. I think only God can predict the future. Everyone else, including demons, ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, X will happen. Because God is the sovereign ruler of the universe. And if demons are predicting the future, it's only if it's true, it's only because they heard it from God, maybe from a prophet or something like that. Or it's a self-fulfilling supernatural prophecy where if I were to say, you know, in, in the next minute, that chair across the room is going to move five feet back, you know, and then I get up and go do it. But if uh, hidden demons are doing physical things, then it's amazing. It's a stunning miracle and people are amazed. I don't know how she does it, but apparently she was making some money. And so she's bringing in a lot of money for her owners by fortune telling. What does verse 16 teach us about money and religion in ancient Greece? And mm. is the making of large amounts of money in occult practices or false religion still an issue today? Yeah, absolutely. There's a, a, for a long time been a link between uh, religion and money. We know that there's a lot of f false false uh, gospel preachers uh, who are hucksters on the money uh, on the on on the on the TV or on the internet and they make a lot of money. And so it is with other religions. And it was going on uh, back in Paul's day, Paul says, you know that we never um, use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. You know, we weren't in it for the money. We weren't trying to do that. And he has he said also, unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. And so there's a scripture on that as well. That was going on. There would be religious speakers in the Greek city-states um, going from place to place and proclaiming certain things in the names of the gods. Um, you know, we saw that in Acts 14 with Paul and Barnabas, and uh, Paul was called uh, Hermes, the, the speaker, the public speaker. So this kind of thing was well known. So yeah, there was a link. In this specific thing, uh, people want to know the future. They want to know, are our crops going to succeed, or is this going to happen? And, and this slave girl with the demon had gained a certain notoriety, and people were, uh, were paying the owner's money. So yeah, for a long time, there's this link between religion, even false religion, and money.
In verse 17, what does Luke say the girl was doing with Paul and his companions, and what was so distressing about this? Yeah, she's following them and crying out these words. These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Every word of that was true. And it's interesting because the same thing happened in the Gospels. And like in the Gospel of Mark, uh, the demon says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, or Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus, in every case, would shut the demons down and forbid them to say anything about him, even though they were saying accurate things. So from James chapter 4, we learn that demons believe that there is one God and they shudder. Actually, it's James 2. Uh, so they have accurate theology, but they have wicked hearts. And so both Jesus and Paul do not want demons as spokes, spokespeople or spokesbeings, et cetera. And so that's what's going on there. Uh, this demon-possessed girl is, sh- is shouting right things about Paul, and Paul is becoming agitated, <laughs> irritated about it. Now, verse 18 says that she kept doing this for many days. Mm. Why do you think Paul didn't cast the demon out sooner? And what does this same verse teach us about the power of the name of Jesus Christ? Sure. I I think what we need to realize, especially once Jesus has ascended into heaven, uh, Jesus did a volume of miracles that will never be repeated again. And the quality of miracles, quantity and quality will never be repeated again. The, The miracles the apostles did, I think, were far fewer in number, and they were signal events, supernatural, amazing, obviously but just not that frequency. And so in general, Jesus didn't come to put an end to to sickness and death and demon possession. These were symbols of a future world in which there would be no sickness or death or demon possession. And how much more did the apostles not come to put an end to sickness and death and demon possession? So they're just going to exist in a city in which many people, I think, were demon-possessed. And Paul's not driving any of them out. He's just Mm. going about his ministry. But this one forced himself upon Paul, and he finally had to deal with it. So I think it's significant that he let it go on for a couple of days before he finally deals with it. Also, it seems kind of odd or interesting to me that he did it out of, it seems, personal irritation. So I'm sure there was a measure of compassion for the woman and a sense of the glory of God, but that's what motivated him. He was so agitated or irritated that he finally drives the spirit out. And he does that, it says, uh, in the name of Jesus Christ. Talk about the power of the name of Jesus Christ that Paul invokes here as he casts this demon out. Well, I think we're going to find later in the book of Acts with the seven sons of Sceva, you know, fundamentally, you know, the apostles have no intrinsic power. We have no power of our, of our own. All of the power comes from the name of Jesus. And we saw this earlier in Acts chapter four when they asked uh, Peter and John, by what power or what name did you heal the lame beggar? Jesus said it was by the, or sorry, Peter said it was by the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. So in the name of Jesus means by his power, by his authority that has been delegated to us. That's what the name, so there's tremendous power in the name of Christ. All right, what does the reaction of the slave girl's owners show about human nature? And what should they have done when she was released from her demon? Well, let's take the second question first. They should have rejoiced and been thankful. Um, But they had no compassion on this girl. She was a commodity, a a piece of chattel for them. And they're making money on her. 
So she was talented in that way. She had, they had no concern for her at all. And so it just shows the human nature is just complete selfishness where, where they should have rejoiced and been thankful and so grateful for this woman's suffering coming to an end. Instead, uh, all they cared about was money. They cared about themselves. I think there's a problem now that we have, and we're increasingly aware of how significant this problem is worldwide, and that is uh, sex trafficking or slave trafficking, not just for sex, but for labor too. And those individuals care nothing for the people they're using. All they care about is the money they're making off of the, the bodies of these people, these young girls, et cetera, or the slave labor. And so it goes on today. People have no concern one for another, just how can I use you for my own advantage and my own benefit? So what accusation did these wicked slave owners then make against Paul and Silas? Mm. And how did they seek to turn the judges and the crowd against them? So they drag Paul and Silas into the marketplace to face the authorities. And they said these words, these men are Jews and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. A very devious accusation. Uh, Paul and Silas were doing no such thing. Um, but the fact of their being Jewish, uh, I think there is, there's been anti-Semitism probably ever since the diaspora, mm. ever since the Jews were scattered all over the Mediterranean and the ancient Near Eastern world, people hated on them and, and didn't want them. Actually, even before that, they hated the Jews. And so there was a sense of anti-Semitism, of hatred and of alien, they're alien people. And, and it's true that everywhere that, that the Jews went, they set up their own culture, their own customs. They were a peculiar people, it says in the King James Version. They were set apart by their dietary laws and their appearance and their garments and all that. They were a set apart people. Paul and Silas were Jews, um, but they didn't understand any differences in terms of Christianity, et cetera. But they're, they're hitting some well-known themes here with these Gentile overlords. And, and it, it was effective. They uh, were able to trigger them and get them to punish them. How do you think Paul and Silas felt at the pain and indignity of verses 22 and 23? And why was there such an extreme reaction to Paul and Silas's crime? You no, know, it's, it's terrible. Uh, Paul lists his sufferings in 2 Corinthians 11, and uh, among them are eight different beatings of two different types, five of the lashes, 40 lashes minus one, and three times beaten with rods. And this may have been one of the beatings he listed there. I don't know. It might have been an uh, entirely separate beating. But Paul and Silas are stripped publicly and beaten severely, flogged severely. So it isn't just a beating. It's a flogging here, which you know tended to rip flesh from the backs of the people. And Paul does say in the book of Galatians, uh, let no one bear uh, or let no one cause me any trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. You know, there's, there's an indignation there where he talks about his own physical sufferings and the scarring on his body. So this, this was humiliating. It was public. And Paul's going to say that at the end of the account. They beat us publicly. So there's a public shaming here and uh, also, obviously, uh, overwhelming physical pain. I mean, some of these beatings could be bad enough to kill you. I mean, just with blood loss and all that. Just terrible thing that happened. Verse 23 says, when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. What did the jailer do to Paul and Silas, and do we get a sense of his attitude toward them in verse 24? 
yeah, he's just doing a job. He's a functionary. He's a jailer. It's his job, and he's just he's do, he's doing what he what he was told. And it's like if he's if they have some special uh, prisoners that need especially to be guarded, and and that there's no chance of their escape, uh, then the jailer did what was necessary. He brought them down to a kind of a central cell, away from away from the walls, I guess, away from the windows, an inner cell, so deep in the dungeon. Uh, must be it must have been incredibly dark. And it says that they fastened their feet in the stock, so they had no freedom to move around. Mm. So I can't imagine what that must have felt like. It must have been very painful on their on their ankles, um, and uh, you know they're unable to adjust their position. Um, they're they're bleeding, so they have to maybe sit up up, uh, you know, keep the the dirt off their backs mm. or something like that. It's just the physical agonies off the charts here. And so the jailer's just doing a job, and he and he puts them in an inner cell and fastens their feet in the stocks. What is it that makes verse twenty five so astonishing? Mm. And why do you think Luke mentions that the other prisoners were listening in? Yeah, it's incredible. This is this is literally to me one of the greatest moments in redemptive history. Uh, Acts eighteen twenty five. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And this is just a picture of that of that rare jewel of Christian contentment that Jeremiah Burroughs talks about, seventeenth century Puritan pastor. This is a very rare thing here. Um, as I've looked at it before, I think uh, they're very similar to Jonah in this regard. Um, when you think about the five senses that Jonah was experiencing in the belly of the fish, mm. I mean, what it mu- must have looked like, nothing, there's no light, sounded like the digestive patterns of the fish, smelled like, you don't want to go mm-hmm. there, um, felt like, I mean, on and on. And same thing with Paul and Silas, but very different. Um, what were they seeing? Well, the jailer has to call for lights, so it's dark. Uh, what were they hearing? The other prisoners, probably, cursing, howling, enraged, or maybe by the end it's kind of quiet, it's midnight, but just the sounds of prison. And, and what, were they, what were they feeling? They were, they were in agony. You know, Their backs were bleeding. The first, the first thing the jailer does after coming to faith in Christ is tends their wounds. So they're just bleeding, mm. you know? And and what what were they smelling? Just disgusting. I'm I'm sure the sanitation was off the charts horrible. You know. And and what were they tasting? Their own their own blood, uh, sweat, uh, dirt, disgustingness. And despite all of that, you can't have a, a a you know within reason. I think you can't have a worse physical situation. You could also say what were they anticipating? Could very well be executed the next day. And there they are praying to God and singing hymns. They've got Christian contentment, and Christian contentment is a combination of joy and peace in the midst of the circumstance. They're filled with joy. Why? Because Christ is risen. That's why. Hmm. It's rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. That's why. They've been beaten many times, Paul has especially, for the gospel. A huge reward is waiting for him. He knew that. Hmm. And so their faith, their faith in the promises of God and in the history of God, the gospel of God, of what Jesus had done, enabled them to do this. And it had converting power because it converted the Philippian jailer. I don't know if it converted some of the other prisoners. I have no idea, but it does say in the text, the prisoners were listening to them. Now here are a couple of unusual men. So what does it do for me? This is a, a direct point of application. Be like them. In the midst of any and every circumstance, pray and sing hymns in your heart to God, as Ephesians says, spirit-filled life. That's what it's like 
to be filled with the Spirit is to be able to do this. So, Wes, mm-hmm. I yearn for this. I, I think about this, I, I say without exaggeration, three or four times a week, Paul and Silas in Philippian jail. I talk about it in my family. I talk about it with others. I just think, let's be like them. Now, do you think Luke expects us to find a link between the hymn singing that we just discussed in verse 25 and the supernatural earthquake of verse 26? And let's talk a little bit about what was so unusual about this earthquake as well. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I call it a surgical surgical strike earthquake. So uh, it's a violent earthquake. It's a big-time earthquake. The foundations of the prison are shaken. And instead of the walls come crumbling down, the prison doors fly open and everyone's chains come loose. Now, that's odd. You know, it's supernatural. It's precise earthquake. Precise surgical <laughs> strike earthquake. And so it's amazing. Yes, I think there's a connection. Mm. This moves God. And it's interesting, you know, you think about Psalm 18, which is David's deliverance psalm where he's in a battle uh, scenario. David was a warrior. And he cries out to God from the battlefield. And God hears from on high and comes down filled with rage with, with like fire coming out of his nostrils, riding on the clouds of heaven to deliver David from his enemies. He comes down and the, and the mountains shake because he's angry. And he comes down and, and David's able enabled to slaughter his enemies and win the battle. Well, here it's, they cry out to God and he comes down and does this, you know, sets people free. <laughs> so nobody dies. This is a beautiful thing. And so I just, I just think of the, the beauty of the, of the new covenant and of the grace of God in the gospel. Uh, the, it says in Isaiah, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the earth would shake before you. Hmm. That's Isaiah. But when the heavens were rent at Jesus' baptism, a dove came down, you know, gentle and peaceful and a voice. This is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. That's what the rending of the heavens and God coming down is. Hmm. So here God comes down with a violent earthquake, but no one dies. Instead, people are delivered. Hmm. It's pretty beautiful. So for Paul and Silas, they understand with their bonds being loosed that this is freedom from the Lord. But what did the jailer do when he heard the earthquake? And what does he assume when he sees the open doors? Yeah, well, let's let's find out. What ends up happening is Paul cries out and says, don't harm yourself, we're all here. So let's go back. The, The surgical strike earthquake happens and everyone's chains fall off and the doors fly open, but no one escapes. No one leaves, not just Paul and Silas. No one leaves. So I find that interesting too. There's lots of interesting features here. And it's important that no one leaves because the jailer would have paid for it with his life and he's about to become a brother in Christ. So it was grace to God for a soon-to-be-adopted son that he didn't have any answering to do. Hmm. All right? And so what happens is the jailer assumed that all the prisoners had left. And he draws his sword and is about to commit suicide. So I look on this as a freeze frame moment in eternity here. Here's a man who is as yet unconverted, who is pulling out a sword to kill himself. His soul is dangling over eternity, over the pit of hell by his own hand. And a voice comes out of the darkness. Don't harm yourself. We're all here. That voice saved his life and his soul. Now, the gospel would save his soul, but he would never have heard the gospel if the sound of Paul's voice hadn't come out. He Mm. would have fallen on the sword. Mm. He was ready to do it. And so I just look on that as one of the key 
stunning moments, instants in redemptive history. Here is a man chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to spend eternity in heaven, and he came that close to hell. Mm. And the voice comes out from Paul saving his soul. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's powerful. Yeah. Do you think we get a picture there in verse 28 of, of Paul's love for his enemies too, that mm. he would even care enough to cry out and yeah. stop what he knows must be going through the jailer's mind if the doors yeah. are open and the chains I'm are done. loose? I'm dead meat. He, you know, Paul cries out. There's, yeah. Do you yes. think we get a picture of his love here as well for Absolutely. his enemies? That's such a beautiful picture. I don't know how Paul knew. Maybe God told him supernaturally. Mm. He could see through a window or something mm. like that. I have no idea, but he knows what the jailer's about to do because the jailer's on the outside. He has to call for lights and come in. So I think, yeah, he, this is love for enemies. And it's like any enemy at any moment could become a brother or a sister mm -hmm. in Christ. And so uh, that's what we see from Paul. So the jailer doesn't take his own life, but verse 29 tells us that he is still trembling with mm -hmm. fear and he falls down before mm -hmm. Paul and Silas. What do we learn from this verse? Mm -hmm. oh, it's, it's amazing. So you get the picture. He calls for light. So I guess that's torches. And maybe some people come in with him. You know, he's in charge. He runs the jail. So he's got some men that will, some soldiers probably that would be there. And he comes in and falls trembling before them. Um, and I'm sure the adrenaline of just about, I mean, the earthquake and then I'm a dead man, everybody's gone, and then might as well just kill myself, and he's about to do it, he's made the decision to do it. And so the adrenaline must be coursing through his veins, mm. and he's physically trembling, but he also trembling in that he knows he needs to be saved. And he says, he brings Paul and Silas out, and here's the Acts 1630 question, what must I do to be saved? Mm. It's one of those things you just quote all the time, it just comes all the time. It's like, let's ask the Philippian jailer question. What must I do to be saved? There is no more important question. Similar to Matthew 16, where Jesus says, uh, who do people say that I am? It's a similar kind of seminal question, a mm. key question. They're very closely related. What must I do to be saved? And who do you say that I am? They're kind of very closely related because Paul gives the answer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But yeah, that is the key question. And it's a question everyone should should be asking, saved from what? Saved from hell, mm. saved from our sins, saved from the judgment of God, that's what. And goes right to Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So that's the answer to the question. So they answer this most important mm. question, like you just said, saying, <clears throat> believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Mm. What is the fact that they go on after this to teach the jailer more about Christ, teach yeah. us about evangelism? The answer is mm -hmm. question, but that's not all they do. What do no. we learn here about evangelism? No, it's very vital. There's so many things we need to say here. Um, the answer is simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. But we need more information. Uh, the jailer needs more, more information because it says in verse 32, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. So we need to pair these verses together um, and go over first to Romans 10, where it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Mm. But how then can they call in one of whom they have not believed? So before you can call on Jesus, you have to believe in him. Keep going. How can they believe in one of whom they have not heard? So before you can believe in Jesus, you have to hear about him. So let's stop right there. That's verse 32. Then they spoke the word of the Lord. They told him the gospel story, hmm. the virgin birth, the sinless life, the temptation or testing in the, in the wilderness maybe, the miracles, some of the teachings, the substitutionary atoning death, the bloody death on the cross, 
the bodily resurrection, at least that. So they had to go through the basic facts of the biography of Jesus. It must have taken some time. And it's amazing. So here, Paul and Silas, still in pain from their beating, still wounds bleeding, and they're going through this stuff. And their hearts must have been filled with joy. Hmm. So they're in physical pain, but their souls are singing. It's like, all right, let's, let's tell this man the gospel. And so they go through this. Now, another, another fact here is sometimes what's mentioned to us Baptists who believe that people should first believe and then be water baptized. Often what paedo-baptists or those that believe in infant baptists bring out is household baptisms. Well, this is an example of a household baptism that's utterly Baptist. Because the household, it is true, they're mentioned, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. The same goes for you and your household, I think is the way I would understand that. Not just you believe and your household will be saved. No, no, no. You and your household believe in Jesus and you and your household will be saved. Mm -hmm. And to you and your household will preach the gospel. And the whole household is very clear. The whole household heard the word and the whole household believed. And then the whole household was baptized. This is as Baptist as it gets. <laughs> so um, to our Pado baptist friends, we love you, we respect you, but this is not going to help you, mm. Acts 16. Even if you want to do household things like Acts 10 and other places, you will do better there than here in Acts 16 because this is a hearing, believing, repentance and faith and water baptism. Andy, I can't help but see, you know, even as you were talking about Romans 10 and those who are sent with the good news, mm -hmm. Paul and Silas singing in the jail, right? Something that God had done in them. You know, we talk about these two journeys, right, as a mm -hmm. part of the two journeys ministry, yeah. but their their heart that is set on and delighting in God, mm -hmm. and then the overflow of that in this opportunity that they seize to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's just a powerful connection, again, so of this beautiful. work that God has done in them that then overflows to the benefit of those around Praise them. Praise God. That's a great word. I love it. How does this passage show the power of the gospel to change enemies into friends, yeah. and what evidence mm -hmm. of conversion do we see in the jailer? Well, we see a, uh, see motions of compassion that the jailer has. I, mean, I don't sense that 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 jailers in the olden days, back in the in those days, were compassionate men mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they had a job to do. Yeah. They're functionaries, and maybe even some of them were sadistic torturer types. This man, uh, at that hour of the night, the text says, so middle of the night, midnight or beyond, uh, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. So he's caring for them. This is, this is almost exactly like uh, the, the good Samaritan who finds a man beaten by the side of the road and takes care of him. Hmm. And so he has become the good Samaritan. The jailer has and is caring for Paul and Silas. And so that's like... Paul and Silas cared for his soul by the preaching of the gospel. Now he's caring for their bodies by washing their wounds, bandaging them, caring for them. And not only that, brought them into his house, into his family. Middle of the night, he gets everyone up. They've heard the gospel. We already said that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there they are. Everybody's awake and brings them to the house and sets a meal uh, before them. And so his family, uh, having been baptized, they believed uh, they're, it's a celebration. They're all new believers, and they must have had some great conversations there. Paul might have given them a quick synopsis of the later, perhaps, book of Romans or something like that, giving them some solid doctrine. And then this beautiful statement, the jailer and his family are filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his, 
entire household or whole family. So that's, again, a, a Baptist conviction, a sense that they all had believed in God. They had heard the message and believed. But that meal, I mean, I don't know if it's four in the morning at that point, what it is, but just what a wonderful fellowship time that was. Mm. Unforgettable night. Hmm. Why did Paul require the magistrates to personally escort them out of the jail? And what do Paul and Silas do at the end of all of this before leaving town? Well, it's very interesting here. We don't know what's really going, going on in Paul's mind, but he was a strategic thinker. Um, he really was. He was like a general, uh, like or a major general that's in charge of a whole theater of operations. He can see strategically what's going on here. And he knows that he and Silas are going to leave. They're itinerary, itinerant preachers. But he's leaving behind a fledgling church, including Lydia, deal in purple cloth, her households, other converts, and now this jailer in his household, etc. He's leaving behind the church that he will write the epistle of the Philippians to, that he mm. loves so dearly. And he says there in the epistle of the Philippians, he says, you're going through the same suffering or struggle that you uh, hear, heard, that, saw that I had, and now hear that I still have, which is incarceration, uh, you know, beatings, all that. You're going through it now. So he's leaving behind a virulent situation of hostility and opposition. So he wants to strike a blow for for tolerance and lenience, and perhaps for the gospel to have some room to maneuver. Hmm. So they're trying to get rid of them quietly, and he's like, no, that's not going to work. Now, you have to understand something about Philippi. It was an honorary colony of Rome because of some military uh, victories that had happened in the century before that. And so they were very proud of their Roman citizenship. That's why the accusers against Paul and Silas said, these men are Jews and are advocating customs that's unlawful for us Romans. See, we're Romans hmm. to practice. They're all citizens of Rome. Paul has to say in Philippians, our citizenship's in heaven. The key thing is not Roman citizenship, but they did honor it. And now Paul plays that trump card. He pulls his citizenship card out and he says, what? They beat us publicly hmm. without trial? We who are Roman citizens? Well, wait a minute now. All we heard was that you're Jews. Well, we're Roman citizens. And it's like, boy, he brings out, and he'll do it again later in the book of Acts uh, in, in Jerusalem, he'll do it. But, but here he does it. It's like, whoa, wait a minute now. So I think the reason he did it was to effect some religious freedom for the fledgling church in Philippi to not be so abused by these magistrates. Andy, any final thoughts as we see Paul and Silas uh, visit Lydia Speak to the brothers, encourage them, and then depart. Any final thoughts on this passage? Yeah, I mean, this is the this is that 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 new church in Philippi. He loves them dearly. I think the Philippians has one of the sweetest tones of any of his epistles. Very personal. Loves them, and he wants to establish them, get them ready in the Word. And uh, he's not defying the magistrates. He's going to fit in with them. You know, he they they tell him to go in peace, and and he uh, he and Silas are going to go, but first he wants to establish and confirm them in the Word of God, and so that's what they do, um, and so they they spend time with the brothers and encourage them. Must have been through the Word of the, of the Lord, and then they left. So it's a beautiful story, and as I've said a number of times here. I want to circle back to Christian contentment. Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. You Philippians saw it. You saw it in me. And uh, for me, it's a lasting legacy of seeking that same thing in my life. This has been episode 33 in our Acts Bible Study podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode 34 entitled Paul in Thessalonica and Berea, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. 
Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.